Picture a city as it wakes up in the morning. Dim grey streets slowly turn to colour. In high-rise apartment buildings, bare feet hit the ground on every floor. Lights turn on, screens are tapped, breakfast is rushed. It all happens at a scale unfathomable, and it's all stacked up. We built cities to concentrate the raw human potential of millions of people within a few square miles. When I lived in London, I used to think about this. All of this life is piled on top of itself, and because it's under such pressure, unique things start to happen. Innovation happens. Hi, I'm Vonnie Lee, and this is The Tomorrow Farm. On this episode, we'll explore how with the help of human ingenuity, life flourishes even in the tightest spaces. You have such little volume to work with. You're trying to pack as much growth area as you can and as much hardware and equipment as you can in a small space and make it as light and efficient as possible. That's Christine Escobar. And her head isn't in the clouds, it's past them. The biggest similarity is efficiency. Everything you do, you're trying to do more with as few resources as possible. We have the stacked trays. We have the power-efficient LED lighting. We recirculate the water in a hydroponic way. The things that are different are primarily the ability to control where the water goes in microgravity. Also, I would say that there are incredibly strict resource limitations on a spacecraft. Christine is Vice President of Space Lab Technologies, and her mission is to help astronauts survive in tight spaces as they float through the cosmos. One way she does this? By helping them grow food without the sun, soil, rain or room we have here on Earth. When NASA asked Christine's company to develop a system capable of cultivating highly nutritious aquatic plants for a crew of astronauts, they built something they called the microgravity lily pond. Lily Pond is a miniature vertical farm for use in microgravity. It's a thin film hydroponic system for those of you who are familiar with hydroponics. The Lily Pond is striking to look at. It's a relatively small silver box with a transparent door in the front, like a futuristic looking easy bake oven. There's these vertically stacked beds, growing beds, with thin films of water that flow over them to the plant roots. And it has LED lighting. It has temperature and humidity control, just like a vertical farm might. It has automated water recycling inside to make efficient use of water and not waste it. But the most important component, of course, is the crop of greens that covers each tray like a dense carpet. How did Christine decide which plant to design the system around? I Google searched it and I found this list of what are the fastest, it was like a top 10 list of the fastest growing plants on the planet. And that's how I ran across duckweed and started learning more about it. Yes, so far, the best plant to grow on a spaceship is something called duckweed. If you're going to the moon, bring some. It's tasty, it's tough, it's packed with nutrients. It's a good listener, but the thing that makes duckweed so perfect is how little it requires. As NASA prepares for longer missions into deep space, and you get further and further away from the planet, and you're away for a longer amount of time, and it's much harder to get back if something breaks down, there's going to be this need for sustainable production of fresh food, and it becomes more urgent the further out you go. 
It is the idea that you can use life to support life, that you are using natural mechanisms that have evolved to work very well over millions of years and bringing that life into an uninhabitable place where there's no life and being able to sustain that process. So bringing a little bit of Earth with you, that's, I think, what really intrigues me about it. Astronauts are bringing a little bit of Earth with them. Why? Because they understand its value. When you're surrounded by immense nothingness, a little pool of green can feel like home. Brilliant engineering and design, like the kind Christine employed when building the lily pond, is about making life happen more efficiently. But could biology take this idea even further? We'll get to that question in a few minutes. But first, Singapore. They do make us put on personal protective equipment, the bunny suits looking things, all the way from the hair nets to the gowns to the covers for the shoes. These farms that we go to will enter an industrial building and a facility will enter into is firstly pretty cool. The temperature is pretty cool. One of our investee companies likes to tell me that the air in their farm is the freshest air I can get in Singapore. And the reason is because they do treat the air before it enters the facility, again, to remove any impurities in the air. So when the air is so pure and so crisp, all you really smell is the plant. That's Jerry Go. She works for a partner company of Bayer's, a global investment firm called Tomasic. And the facility she's describing is a vertical farm. Vertical farms are large-scale indoor farming operations, and their aim is to grow fresh local produce in or near cities for local grocery stores and restaurants. This vertical farm Jerry is describing is in Singapore, but she could be talking about any one of the hundreds of facilities around the world. And that's sort of the point, the consistency. A vertical farm in Singapore looks almost identical to one in Chicago, or London, or Tokyo. That's because they're all optimised around the same idea, growing plants and doing it incredibly well. In the farm, you see different rooms. When I walk into a room, I say I want to see rows and rows of produce. A range of vegetables from salad greens like kale, spinach, arugula, to also Asian greens. Things that we eat more commonly in Asia, bok choy, kangkongs, all kinds of produce. And so that whole horizon, you're going to see rows and rows of racks with trays of plants growing on it. Not only does it expand horizontally across the length of the room, but also vertically. As you look up, you will see tiers and tiers of these racks. Sometimes six tiers, eight tiers worth of growing space. It's really a very three-dimensional experience when you walk into such an indoor vertical farm. With roots in the hyper-modern city of Singapore, Tomasic sees itself as a generational investor. They look for transformative ideas that will last. So why does Jerry think vertical farming is the future of food for many Asian cities? Well, I think it could be because of survival. Asia is probably one of the fastest urbanizing regions in the world. And when you're up against this trend of urbanization where land is constrained and there are competing use for land, we are now forced to get creative. We're now forced to think about stacking the growing up so that we can make better use of land. We're forced to get creative. Survival does that to us, doesn't it? In a vertical farm, mind-bending creativity and innovation are about as abundant as kale leaves. 
But the first most crucial problem engineers had to solve was a fairly straightforward one, keeping the lights on. You would associate a farm with the colour green, but actually the colour to associate with a vertical farm is purple. Because of the LED lighting and the different bandwidths of the lighting, there have been a lot of technology improvements in the form of more efficient LED lighting and cooling technologies. So the energy consumption has come down quite a bit from, I would say, previous generations of vertical farms. And some of these vertical farms are also tapping on solar energy to further improve their carbon footprint. I think we're headed in the right direction. As LED lighting has gotten more efficient year after year, vertical farming has become more economically viable. Light, of course, being one of the three ingredients you need to grow plants. But what about the other two? Here's Jerry talking about the seedlings in a grow room. They grow in these foam cubes where they put the seed and you have the roots hanging out at the end of the foam cube and they're dangling in water. Wow, so it's soilless. I mean, isn't soil like a really important ingredient in growing plants? Yes and no. I think soil is a way to deliver the nutrients. But if you're able to now have hydroponics and deliver the nutrients in the exact precise quantity at the exact moment that you think is best for the plant, when it's time to feed or water the plants in that sense, you can turn on the pump and the water is piped up to the top of the rack and then it starts to go trickle down with gravity tree by tree, tier by tier down to the bottom. And the excess water flows down and is collected at the bottom of the shelf again and that's where it's treated and recycled for the next run back to the top. So in that sense, because it's close and you don't get a lot of water running off the surface, we're able to recycle a lot of the water and therefore the indoor vertical farms are able to use 90% less water than open field farming. Now that's quite important in a city like Singapore because actually water is another very scarce resource. Since the entire country of Singapore is essentially one city, there is not a lot of space for its 5.7 million residents. I looked this up. For every square meter of space in Singapore, there are about 7.8 people. That's dense. But the solution, of course, is to build up. Just as architects pull square footage out of thin air, vertical farmers too look toward the sky when things get tight. Vertical farms use only 10% of the land that traditional open farms would use. When you are able to grow the produce closer to where you consume, there's going to be less carbon footprint from the transportation of the products to from farm to fork. Like I said, in cities like Singapore that I call food deserts because we import a lot of the food we consume, whether by sea or by air, imagine that carbon footprint from that transportation. But also there is another level of environmental impact because a lot of the food that is produced today is actually rotting in transit as they are moving from one place to another, from the farm to the fork. There is a lot of food waste from rotting. And now because we are able to grow closer to where we consume, that shorter supply chain is going to significantly reduce the food waste. All of this is possible because Singapore was forced to get creative. Cleaner, cheaper lights, ingenious design. What's left to improve? The next level of breakthrough, I think, would really come from the seeds, the inputs. And right now, today, a lot of these indoor vertical farms are still using seeds that are meant for outdoor farming because that's the only seeds available in the market. So imagine if we're able to come up with 
seeds that are designed specifically for indoor vertical farming, where we don't have to worry about variations in, in the environment, but we are able to optimize for the growth cycle, for the taste, and for even the look of the product. I think that is the next level of innovation that would be very exciting. So that's basically the thesis of Unfold. We are going to select for those varieties to breed for those varieties that'll work most effectively within a vertical farm. Because I do think the next, and we've got great reception of this, the next phase as far as the technology innovation is going to come on the biology side. And it's been so far underserved just because so much has been invested in how to produce, how to make these farms. Now it's like, okay, what are we going to grow? That's John Purcell. He recently made the transition from leading research and development at Bayer Vegetable Seeds to heading up one of its newest investments with Tomasic, a startup called Unfold. I've been in food and agriculture for 30 plus years. Actually, the communications team tells me to say three decades. I guess that makes you sound not quite as old if you say three decades. No, but I've loved it. I think food and agriculture is a great place to spend a career. I've had the great fortune of being on farms in over 35 countries, really looking at different crops, different production systems. One of the things I learned earlier in my career, one of my previous mentors or bosses said, don't fall in love with the science, fall in love with the solution. And then really, I really appreciate that because really what it's about is, yeah, you want to do great science, you want to be innovative, but if it's not solving a problem, it's just not quite as rewarding for me. The problem John is trying to solve now is creating the perfect seeds to grow in the unique conditions of a vertical farm. In other words, helping life thrive in close quarters. But before we talk to John about the science, I want you to hear from another brilliant guy who's also preoccupied with solutions. His name is PJ Amini. I'm a director of venture investments with the Leaps by Bayer division of Broader Bayer. I'm based out of San Francisco, California one of the kind of venture capital hubs here in the U.S. And I've spent my last probably 11 years here with Bayer. I wanted to talk to PJ because like most interesting people, he is interested in a lot. I'll say personally, I've always had this overwhelming interest towards everything. So I'm the person who, when they get a list of different kind of scientific research breakthroughs and the latest Nature magazine comes through, I'm the person that reads through everything. And that's what I'm doing for the next two or three hours until I'm done with that. And then I can move on with the rest of my day and my life. Fitting for a guy whose job is to search out the latest, most innovative ideas in health and agriculture and invest Bayer's resources into them. So what's the story of Unfold? We realized there was a missing component to make this industry a success. So Unfold is our play within the vertical farming industry to address that missing gap. And that gap was genetics. So not just from an investor lens of being an investor in Unfold, but being a research partner with them we're able to leverage our expertise and our knowledge base to help dramatically accelerate Unfold as a new company to make the best selections to optimize their breeding program to really serve the needs of the vertical farming market. So this is a little bit of a match made in heaven from that perspective. Remember what I said earlier about vertical farms all looking identical, no matter where they are in the world? That's true, not just of the architecture, but of the actual plants growing on the racks. Most of them grow the same handful of crops, or at least they did. Back to John Purcell, the CEO of Unfold. Current markets are really in leafy crops, spinach, lettuce, microgreens, etc. But I think for vertical to go the next step, they have to make the leap to fruiting crops. What I mean by that is crops like tomato, pepper, cucumber. So for us, our portfolio, our first five crops that we'll be working with Bayer on, from the germplasm standpoint, are spinach, lettuce, tomato, pepper, and cucumber. Mm. 
produce ready to eat. Because vertical farms are closer to the stores and restaurants, consumers end up eating fresher, more delicious produce. But John thinks he can do even better. Instead of only focusing on the traits that say make a tomato plant resist disease, the plant breeders at Unfold can focus on, as Jerry said, how it looks and tastes. You're taking all those environmental factors out of the equation. You don't have to worry about the abiotic stresses, temperature, water, because you're controlling that, you're eliminating the pests. That allows you to really focus on those characteristics that vertical really needs, the light response, the architecture, the ability to robot, automated harvest, and really focus on the quality because you don't have to worry about all the other characteristics you normally have to bring in when you're producing for open field or even greenhouse production. The science behind this type of plant breeding is remarkable. We've talked a lot about it on past episodes of the podcast. What keeps coming up as I learn more and more from scientists and people who've dedicated their lives to this field is that much of this work is done in the name of efficiency. It's to make plants require less water to save precious resources. It's to make plants grow stronger to avoid waste. It's a long list of challenges scientists are trying to solve. In the case of vertical farming, efficiency means growing a bright, plump, delicious tomato in November in Chicago. All of this is because consumers, that's you and me, are requiring more of our food system. I think what's happened is people are asking a little deeper questions about where is it grown? How was it grown? Who grew it in some cases, right? That whole transparency of the food supply chain. It's not just about, wow, that's really tastes great. I like the price, I'll buy it. They're asking some fundamental questions. And I think in the fresh produce industry, especially, you get a lot more of those questions about it has to be affordable, but also tell me more about where this came from before I bring it to my house or before if you're a chef or restaurateur, before I bring it to my restaurant. From climate change to urbanization to a rising global population, the demands we're putting on our food system are new. But the ideas to improve agriculture have been around for a long time. I'll say a guilty pleasure of mine is reading farmers' almanacs from the last 200 years. And the thing you realize when you look at what farmers were writing about 150 years ago is a lot of their ideas around controlling these things and some of their ideas around new technologies are not new. Some of the most breakthrough technologies we've seen in agriculture in the last decade were thought of over 100 years ago. The thing that's changed is our ability, both scientifically and through technology, to actually implement that change and dramatically affect it. So things like Moore's laws that have shown the dramatic increase in compute power has allowed us to do things like this automation and this robotic harvesting. It's allowed us to do things like AI-driven optimization of environmental conditions. And so it's only within the last decade, technology has caught up to the point of allowing us to realize the dream that we've had for so long. PJ mentioned AI-driven optimization of environmental conditions. That roughly translates to robots that constantly tweak and adjust things like water, humidity, nutrients and light inside a grow space. In a growing number of vertical farms, you'll find robot gardeners and not a speck of dirt in sight. Is there now any conversations where all the learnings with vertical farms can now perhaps there's some things that can be applied to open field agriculture that was overlooked before. Is there any type of crossover at all? Yeah, absolutely. As I kind of briefly mentioned before, our R&D organization is working very closely with the unfold side. 
PJ told me that Bayer and Unfold are sharing their discoveries back and forth. Unfold using this new knowledge in vertical farming and Bayer to work in greenhouse and open field agriculture. Every expert I talk to reminds me that vertical farming won't replace open field agriculture, only that it will, in ways, supplement it. Which is what we need, right? Do I see vertical farming in the next 10 to 20 years taking up 50% of the fruit and veggie market? Absolutely not. But do I think that there's key markets worldwide, key places in the Middle East, places like Singapore, Malaysia, island nations that don't have a lot of arable land where this can provide some very significant resources around fresh fruits and vegetables. There are definitely key markets all over the world today that could use a technology like vertical farming. And so for it to fulfill its mission of serving those populations who need it the most, that's my ardent wish and my goal to make that a reality. I'm not a farmer. In fact, when I moved from a civil service job to investing in the agri-food space and I was sharing with my family members that I'm in the urban agriculture space now, my mom gave me a stare and she said, what, you're a farmer now? Jerry started in civil service to improve her neighbours' lives. But looking around, she decided agriculture is how she could best help Singapore. And she didn't have to leave the city to do it. And that's the thing, the whole concept of farming has just changed so much. People don't think of it as a modern, high-tech trait, but it really is. And I think that's what excites me, the ability to incorporate technology into farming. Whether it's helping five astronauts on their way to the next planet, or five million people on their way to becoming six million, hardware matters. But combining technology with a deep understanding of biology will get us where we're trying to go. One of the biggest shifts I've seen in my career is this confluence of technologies where it's really the digital world meeting the biology world. And I think for the last 10, 12, 15 years, we've seen incredible advances in how do we employ digital technologies. And so it's happening across the board, all kinds of production systems. But for vertical, it's really at uh, an incredible place because the fact you're controlling all so much the environment. So you think about it, you can actually dial in, here are the conditions I want. And now, because of some of the advances in technologies that were developed for open field, et cetera, you actually have sensors and probes to detect what's happening in the environmental level. Humanity is rushing to cities because something special happens when we intermingle and share ideas. As life grows more crammed and complicated, there are two resources we'll never risk running out of. Human ingenuity and vertical space. That's it for this episode of The Tomorrow Farm. If you want an even richer experience with more detail that couldn't be squeezed into this episode, go to www.bayercropscience.com. Like always, I want to thank everyone who contributed to this episode. Thank you, Christine Escobar, Jerry Goh, John Purcell and PJ Amini for taking the time to help tell this story. A special thanks to our audio crew for the beautiful editing and sound design. And of course, I have so much gratitude for the team at Bayer. Beth, Danielle, Chris and Julia. Julia.